This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It was the best of times on the best of Fight Back for 2019 with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and Happy New Year. Welcome to part two of the Best of Fight Back 2019 from the second half of the year that was. Wasn't that an exciting time for our city when the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship in June? You'll likely remember how millions of fans came out to line the streets of downtown Toronto to cheer on the Raptors during their championship parade. And then there was the massive rally at Nathan Phillips Square. One of the discussions that came out of that rally was the booing of Doug Ford. Ontario's Premier was introduced on stage along with both Toronto Mayor John Tory and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, among other dignitaries. Soon after the rally, Libby Snymer was joined by our panel of experts, NDP strategist Kim Wright, Liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations Bob Richardson, and Aleem Kanji, VP of Government Relations at Sutherland Corporation. The Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford! It sounds like a wrestling match, but of course that was uh, a clip uh, you just shared from the uh, the parade and the celebrations. Uh, two and a half million people strong uh, at the uh, Raptors uh, victory celebration yesterday. And, you know, the Premier originally had said uh, that he doesn't do parades. And, uh, of course... He ended up uh, coming uh, in uh, uh, participating and sitting on the stage uh, next to the the mayor who was uh, uh, about to clap for the premier, but didn't end up doing that. And, of course, the prime minister uh, who did come out uh, to some applause. And what was really interesting about that is uh, before he came out, uh, he was uh, sort of on the sidelines uh, and, uh, you know, doing some, some glad handing and, and meeting some folks. And one Masai Ujiri the president of the Toronto Raptors, um, who who he walked uh, by, uh, uh, Masai walked by the premier, the premier extended his hand, and uh, they did shake hands, although it, it, it didn't look like they engaged a bit. And, uh, you know, communications, staffing, I mean, there's so many things that go into this as an elected official, and you, you sort of got to wonder what was going on at that moment, and are there going to be some changes outside of the cabinet shuffle that's happening uh, that... Uh, you know, will lend to a, a bit of a stronger presence, I think, for uh, for the Premier going forward. Bob, how damaging was that, do you think? I don't think it's that damaging, but I think it reaffirms what we've seen in seven or eight polls in the last uh, few weeks, that this guy is in political trouble. And, you know, they can't just write it off as downtown elites and sort of martini-sipping people at the Shangri-La Hotel. Uh, there were 2 million people out there, and there was hundreds of thousands of people around for for that presentation. A lot of people dislike what's going on in Ontario today, and I think they made themselves, and it was very clear. Like, let's make no mistake. He got booed and got booed bad, and both uh, the mayor and the prime minister were greeted, I would say, quite warmly. So I think there is a lesson there uh, for them to say, you know, um, we should take a. We should take this seriously. We should look. At, that was a pretty good cross section of uh, 
not only Toronto and the GTA, but I think it was a pretty good cross-section of Ontario. And there were a lot of people there from outside of uh, Toronto and the greater Toronto area who showed up too as well. So if I were those guys, I would not be happy with that. And I would be asking myself, why is this the case? And uh, Kim, Doug Ford has always prided himself on being popular in ethnic communities, and it was a very, very diverse crowd. How important was that? Well, look, I, I will remind listeners that in 1992, uh, Bob Ray got booed pretty loudly and soundly at the Blue Jays uh, World Series. And uh, anyone, any politician who gets booed that soundly and that roundly uh, from constituents uh, should take note, especially given the polling numbers of late that has the premier somewhere in the 29%, uh, 30% range. Uh, they need to take that into serious consideration. And keep in mind, that was two years after Bob Ray got elected did not just over a year. Uh, This isn't about his policies being unpopular or however conservatives want to spin this. There are some serious concerns of the way in which he is doing this and keeping in mind also that this is a premier who is frankly a populist premier who is incredibly unpopular at this particular point in time. They need to do a recalibration, both of their policies and their communication strategies. They need to do that right away. NDP strategist Kim Wright, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations, Bob Richardson, and Aleem Kanji, VP of Government Relations at Sutherland Corporation, in conversation with Libby Snymer. Two days later, on June 20th, Premier Ford shuffled his cabinet. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back 2019. It was also this past spring, millions of protesters took to the streets of Hong Kong to demonstrate against a controversial extradition bill that would see the extradition of suspects to mainland China. The fear of protesters was, in addition to fugitives, this could ensnare critics of the authoritarian mainland government. Later on, Hong Kong's China-backed chief executive backed down and apologized. Carrie Lam suspended the bill after two large demonstrations. But protesters continued to demand that she withdraw it completely and investigate police brutality during the protests. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss developments to that point in the crisis, Charles Burton, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brock University, and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. We're seeing this uh, a generational change. They've been using all kinds of ways to organize themselves without a leader just to uh, avoid uh, detection, surveillance by the Hong Kong and China's uh, authorities. And the whole way they uh, organize themselves, even, you know, recycling cleanup and garbage cleanup, it's, it's quite amazing. And it's very different from five years ago when they did the umbrella movement. At that time, there was a bit of a conflict between the older generation and younger generation. But this time, everybody is working hand in hand. I think at this stage, the primary concern is that the demonstration should not turn violent. I think there are a lot of there's a small faction among those young people that Chirk is uh, is talking about who are calling for escalation of the response. The feeling being that it was only when the people and the police had a confrontation that the government decided to back down on this legislation. And so some young people think that this is a time to engage in more violent outbursts. And that could provide the pretext for the People's Liberation Army troops, um, 
stationed in the former British garrison to be released, and then we'd have a much more like Tiananmen 89 situation. So I'm just praying that, that uh, cool heads will prevail and that and this will remain a peaceful protest and eventually induce the government of China to direct their uh, Hong Kong puppets to uh, to uh, withdraw this legislation and maintain the commitments of the uh, government of China um, uh, under the under the gen- under the basic law. Charles Burton, uh, are you satisfied with what the Americans their role in this so far? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, we had this thing inflicted on us by the United States, and they've been paying lip service to um, making a few weak statements about uh, how the Chinese government should release Kovrigan's favor. Um, you know, we have the impression that uh, Mr. Trump might raise this matter when he uh, meets with Xi Jinping in Osaka at the G20 at the end of this month. Um, that meeting has now been, I think, more or less confirmed. Uh, I frankly really find it not all that credible that we could get a commitment out of Mr. Trump uh, in the course of his negotiations with Mr. Xi to to bring up the, the consular case of Kovrigan's favor. And my expectation is that when Mr. Trudeau is in Osaka, that uh, Mr. Xi's handlers will be making sure that there's no corridor or men's room or or, you know, souvenir photo op encounter between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Xi. I don't think that they will be meeting because the, the Chinese government are in an impossible position with Canada. How can they respond to what Mr. Trudeau will want to tell them? Because what they're doing is just completely and utterly without any kind of justification and gross violation of international law and practice. And uh, Chuck, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I, I, I think the best thing we, we can do is to stand uh, and, and uh, for our own and also to work with our allies. I think uh, Charles mentioned a, a, a big thing about embarrassing China right now, and, and, and China's place uh, in the international arena is going to suffer if they make any false move, and that, let's just hope that, uh, let's leave it at that. Anything you want to add, Charles, before we go? I'd just like to send my sympathy to the people of Hong Kong and pray that these demonstrations will not lead to violence and that, and that the Chinese government will, in fact, make the rightful concessions. Charles Burton, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brock University, and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China, in conversation with Libby Snymer this past June. The anti-government demonstrations continue. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2019. I'm Jane Brown. This past summer, typically a quieter time for news, Fightback was joined by Toronto Mayor John Tory to take stock of what he and City Council were working on and prioritizing. The mayor joined Libby Snymer in studio and began the conversation by touching on the seniors' residence on Young Street, which had been sold to a real estate lawyer, forcing some 150 older people to find a new place to live. The landlord, in this case, and the operator of the uh, residents for seniors are all following all the rules. And so the first thing that Mike Layton and I are going to do is uh, ha- have our officials write us a report on, on, on the shortcomings of the rules so that we can make sure those people are adequately protected. But I think in this case, what you had here is both a change in the ownership of the land, but equally important, a lack of financial viability of this building. The business itself of running this building that was run by a nonprofit was in jeopardy. So you can't, that, that's not a good thing either. They could have come along one day and just sort of declared bankruptcy. And instead they sort of 
are closing the place out in an orderly fashion, but I realize it's incredibly disruptive and that's what we're trying to sort of help deal with. Mike Layton mentioned that when you get a redevelopment application for that property, that might be the time when the city can do something about it. Am I right? Well, certainly when we get a redevelopment application for any piece of property, we have a degree of leverage as part of our approval process to say, well, you know, yes, we'll let you do some redevelopment, but you have to do this for us. So often we'll say we want a child care center or we want this or we want that. And that's part of the bargain that we strike with the developers. And so the answer to your question is yes, if there's a redevelopment application. And when I say if uh, there isn't one, we don't know of one, there's not somebody that's phoned and said there's going to be one. But if there is one, that's when we get some ability to negotiate with whoever wants to do something on that land to say, well, we want you to help look after seniors or, you know, whatever. But that's something that's strictly hypothetical at this stage. And will that be jeopardized? I mean, we know that the OMB, the Ontario Municipal Board, is coming back. For a while, it looked like Toronto would have a say about development in Toronto. Is it is that likely to be a problem in well, that Well, the process? answer to your question is yes, in a certain way, in that what the OMB was, and I think always there's a need for an appeal body to exist to sort of look after what might be considered incorrect or arbitrary decisions of even the city government of elected people. But it does mean that the OMB could overrule something we could negotiate from a developer and say, no, we don't agree with that, and they have the last word, which I always thought wasn't the right way to go about this. I thought the last word should always rest with elected people, because then you're accountable, and if people don't like something you've done, they'll vote you out. In the meantime, what Councillor Layton and I are going to work together on is making sure that we look at the provincial rules that relate to long-term care and relate to the tenancy of seniors in places like this and make sure that there are as few um, kind of cracks that loopholes? people can fall through. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they were deliberately created loopholes, but there may be things people didn't think about, like an instance like this where we have to look at it and say, look, we want to make sure seniors in this kind of living, aging in place uh, kind of arrangement are not unfairly or disrupted in a way that is inconsistent with what we think should be the case. One of the things that's interesting to me, we hear a lot about uh, the housing crisis for younger people, for millennials, uh, and I think less about the the issue the same issue for seniors no, right. how how bad is is well, that well it, it look the affordability problem in the city of Toronto is an affordability problem for everybody and it, in a way young people and older people are are the same because young people have a lower income coming into the workforce when they start out in their first job older people are living on some sort of a fixed income which is usually lower you know because they're either on a pen- Canadian pension or on a work pension which is not meant to you know the amounts are not such you can be living in the lap of luxury to say the least especially in a very expensive city like this so the answer your question is, the seniors part of this is just as acute a problem and will grow because there are more and more and more people becoming seniors. So it is something that when we talk about affordable housing, a lot of the issue that we are dealing with is going to be to have suitable housing with, in some cases, some extra supports that can allow people to stay in those affordable homes longer. So they have a bit of extra support, even just somebody looking in on them from time to time. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Um, Home care. it's, it's, It's fairly independent living, but there's somebody who notices if you don't kind of appear in the lobby on a given day and they at least go up and knock on the door and say, are you okay? And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. And so this is, we're very focused on that. Toronto Mayor John Tory in conversation with Libby Snymer this past July. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back 2019, Part 2. 
Prior to the official start of the federal election campaign, conservatives were trying to keep voters focused on the SNC-Lavalin affair. In the wake of the Ethics Commissioner's damning report on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's handling of the engineering giant's bribery case. But the first polls taken after the report was released showed the SNC affair had not changed voters' intentions to that point or hurt the Liberals' chances of re-election which made us wonder at the time if the Conservatives' strategy was a good one. Libby Snymer spoke with Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, who insisted back in August this had nothing to do with the upcoming election. This isn't about uh, partisan politics keeping something in the news. It's about getting to the bottom of the details of Trudeau's corruption scandal. Uh, What we know is that he broke the law. He interfered in a a criminal court case to try to get a special deal for uh, his friends at SNC-Lavalin. And Canadians are very concerned when they see powerful politicians doing that. We don't want to live in the kind of country where a prime minister can interfere in the course of justice. Uh, People flee from countries all over the world where that happens. And uh, conservatives are going to do everything we can to get the truth out so that ultimately Canadians can make the decision on October 21st. The report was very detailed. It was scathing. What makes you think that there's more? Well, uh, specifically because we know that there were at least nine witnesses who were prevented from testifying to the ethics commissioner. In his report, he, he details that he was not able to fully investigate this matter because Justin Trudeau blocked witnesses from testifying and refused to grant a full waiver. So there's still more to know. There are still details that are hidden here. Uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould herself and Jane Philpott, uh, the two MPs who were kicked out of the Liberal Party just for telling the truth, have also said that there's more to this story that needs to come out. So my question for Justin Trudeau is, what more could there possibly be? This is already damning enough for him and his government. Uh, what could he possibly be hiding? It must be pretty serious. And that's why we're going to continue to do everything we can. Well, Jody Wilson-Raybould also said that she did not think he was guilty of criminal wrongdoing. Are you saying you believe he is guilty of criminal wrongdoing? Well, it's important to remember that Ms. Wilson-Raybould said that before he came out with this new information. And in this report, uh, the commissioner says that there was an ongoing uh, scheme between the Prime Minister's office and S.C. Lavalin, who were the defendants in the case, that the attorney general did not know what's happening. So when, on the one hand, you've got officials talking to the defendant and trying to come up with a strategy to get them off the hook, and then going to the attorney general trying to get her to overturn a decision without her knowledge, that, to me, rises to the level of obstructing justice. And that is new information that was not known when Ms. Wilson-Raybould was first asked that question, and that's why I've referred it to the RCMP. So are you saying you believe he is guilty of a criminal offense? Well, we live in a country where that is determined by a court of law, not by a politician. I believe there are enough here for a criminal investigation. Uh, That's why I've referred this to the uh, RCAP. It will be up to them to take it from there. Uh, I I certainly believe there's enough here to warrant this investigation. When you think about, uh, can you imagine the same scenario where uh, people are trying to get someone off the hook, so they were talking to the defendant and then go 
to the prosecutor, leaning on the prosecutor to drop the charges. Uh, that's exactly the nature of what we're talking about here. And I think in any other situation, uh, that would certainly warrant an investigation. And that's why we're pushing for one now. Uh, the first polls that were done after the ethics commissioner's report came out uh, were out this morning. And they show that the needle did not move. Were you surprised by that? Well, uh, look, uh, this is not about polling information. This is not about trying to uh, capitalize in a, in a political way. This is trying. This Come is on, a, we're we're heading into an election. No, honestly, this is this is about trying to do what's right and trying to get the truth. And the timing of this is all because of Justin Trudeau. This is not in any way uh, determined by the opposition. If Justin Trudeau had to come clean in the spring, uh, this all would have happened then. But the reason why this is coming out now, just before an election, is because he refused to cooperate. And it took the Ethics Commissioner's report uh, to get to uh, some of these details to light. Uh, I'm confident that Canadians will hold Justin Trudeau responsible for abusing his position and breaking the law. And I'm not really going to be looking at daily polling or weekly polling. I'm going to be taking this message to Canadians. Why they should care about this issue is we do not want to live in the kind of country where elected officials can interfere in a court case to get their friends off the hook. That is a slippery slope that will take us to a very, very dark place if we don't do something about it right now. Federal Conservative leader Andrew Scheer in conversation with Libby Snymer this past August. This is part two of the Best of Fight Back 2019. I'm Jane Brown. She is the pride of the entire nation. Bianca Andreescu became Canada's first Grand Slam champion after winning the U.S. Open final against Serena Williams on September 7th. The 19-year-old from Mississauga, along with some very other talented tennis players, are the products of an excellent system of improving professional tennis in this country. The strategy was put in place back in 2005 by members of Tennis Canada, and it worked. Libby spoke with Roger Martin, past chair of Tennis Canada and professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, who believes there is a lesson in this for all other Canadian organizations. The thing that too many Canadian organizations do is imagine that they can compete with stronger players, more well-financed players from bigger countries, by doing what they do. You can't. You've got to do something different or you'll just be it also ran. And that, I think, is, is the lesson. Figure out a different way to deploy your resources uh, in order to have a chance to win in a different way because you can't win, uh, I think, as Canada, the same way against bigger, stronger opponents. One of the first things that was done was that you hired – I hate to use the word world-class, but we'll use it anyway, a coach for very young players, which had never been done before. And lo and behold, all these years later, these tiny little young players are now, they're the group that we're watching doing amazing things. Most players don't get the chance to have somebody that good, that prominent, who's used to coaching Grand Slam adult players and champions like Boris Becker, helping them get their game in a development path that would take them to top 10. But we didn't adopt the French system, right, which is entirely, entirely controlling. You come to the French Federation and they absolutely control everything within it. We also didn't adopt the American system, which was 
as you can well imagine, laissez-faire, let a thousand flowers bloom, and when somebody gets to be great, you shower them with money. We didn't do either. We said we need to have a different sort of hybrid, which is to set standards of performance, output the standards, and say, if you can achieve these outputs with your own coach, you can do that. Or we'll host you at the National Tennis Center and you'll be coached by uh, our coaches. Uh, so we showed a combination of the kind of inflexibility on the path they needed to be on and flexibility on the how. So these are the sorts of things that we did differently. And at the time, you know, we got lots of criticism for what you always do for not doing it the quote right way. No, we did it. We did it. <laughs> you did it. You so did, did it our own way. You did it your way. This type of way of doing things can be applied to any kind of organization. Advice to other organizations in different spheres, whether spheres, whether it's health or something else or the arts. What should they do based on uh, this success? Have a strategy uh, to win and test your choices for uniqueness. If you have a strategy to win doing the same things as others, you are deluding yourself. If a strategy to win that involves making distinctive choices, you have got a shot. Go do it. That would be my advice. Roger Martin, past chair of Tennis Canada and professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, following Bianca Andreescu's championship win at the U.S. Open. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the best of Fight Back 2019. Her name was Evangeline LaRosa. She was 54 years old when she was killed by a cement truck while trying to cross the street at Young and Erskine in a residential neighborhood on September 10th. There was a sign clearly marked with the words, No Trucks. It was an upsetting incident for neighborhood residents and city councillors alike. In the wake of the deadly crash, councillors Mike Cole, Jay Robinson and Josh Matlow called on the city to improve pedestrian safety immediately around all major construction sites. Cole likened construction in that area to a nonstop invasion and at that time asked for a pause in development in the neighborhood until roads in the area are made safe for pedestrians. Two days after Evangeline's death, Fightback devoted an entire hour to the topic. Libby was joined by Jamie Robinson of Metrolinx and Toronto City Councilors Jay Robinson, James Pasternak, Josh Matlow, and Mike Cole. We need to do something that um, is comprehensive. It just isn't one street or it just isn't uh, Josh's ward or my ward. Uh, It's the three wards that uh, but uh, Young and Eglinton, we are all... Uh, as I said, invaded by uh, these construction uh, heavy-duty trucks, uh, you know, lined up 10 at a time. So we need to put in some kind of uh, uh, traffic uh, management safety plan uh, right away with the police, with the transportation department, with the uh, developers. uh, And we cannot, uh, you know, continue to uh, put Band-Aids on this. We need something comprehensive for the uh, Four Corners. Okay, uh, Josh Matlow, you're in the neighboring ward in St. Paul's. What do you see in your ward? But most of all in Young and Eglinton, given that it's a provincially designated growth uh, center, that we see 
um, an unprecedented level of condo development. And, you know, w- without some of the basics that we believe, Mike and, and Jay Robinson, I believe, along with our, our residents, uh, should be, be there to protect our quality of life and our public safety. Um, you know, the reason that the three of us have been asking for a pause on development for many years, along with safety, is that um, uh, the, the, the pace of growth has gone faster than uh, the uh, the ability for, for government to provide adequate capacity for school spaces and transit uh, and parks uh, and, and basic infrastructure like water capacity to keep up with that pace of growth. If, if all of us don't slow down, more people are going to die. That's just a fact. And we have to address the problem, both through behavioral changes individually, but collectively, we need to move forward with real, genuine Vision Zero implementation to redesign and reconfigure roads. And in 53 Division, one of the police divisions where Young and Eglinton is, for example, that goes all the way from Lawrence down to Bloor, Thorncliffe Park, all the way to Spadina, the police only allocate two traffic cops to enforce the Highway Traffic Act, which is, 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 is just ridiculous. It's insufficient. And far too many drivers uh, believe that they're not going to get caught and there are no consequences, and they're probably right. There should be a plan up front before any development is built to, to not just focus on what they want to build, but most importantly, how are they going to do it and how are they going to do it safely? I'd like to bring in Councillor James Pasternak, who is chair of the Infrastructure and Environment Committee. This idea of, of putting a halt until some kind of something is put in, is, is that at all realistic? These applications went through the proper process, rightly or wrongly. Uh, they were approved. Uh, they did have a traffic and pedestrian safety plan attached to every site plan agreement, uh, but to freeze development in a major intersection. I'm just not sure whether we have the legal tools to do it and whether the courts or the province would even uphold it. Right now, I would like to bring in Jamie Robinson, and he is the Director of Community Relations and Communications for Rapid Transit Projects at Metrolinx, and they, of course, are in charge of that construction. What is your reaction to what you've been hearing and also the suggestion for a moratorium on this construction? One of the things that we know is that it's the most and, and highly regulated from a traffic uh, control point of view. And and I think that we, we've really set the standard uh, through our constructor for traffic safety in a, in a construction environment. It's tremendously important that, they, uh, that uh, we, we, we maintain community safety as much as possible. So you've got uh, the Crosstown, which is, which is a huge, uh, massive construction project. And then since that time, there's been all, you know, a tremendous amount of development. There's all condos going up all over the place. You've got um, uh, people, the trucks that are driving in residential communities where they shouldn't be. You've got drivers of vehicles that are trying to avoid the congestion in these areas, driving in, in adjacent residential communities. And you've got people that uh, that uh, that are, are at risk all the time. So it's it's a collective effort that we've really got to work to, together on to solve. I'd like to bring in Councillor Jay Robinson. Uh, you were saying that the truck was on a street that was clearly marked no trucks. You know, enough is enough. Like, we live in this neighborhood, and people want to feel safe. And she simply came out of, I think, the Starbucks uh, on the uh, one side was simply going across the street in the protected zone, a so-called protected zone, and lost her life. Yeah, I, I think it's, as we've talked about here, we're, 
this is such a such a uh, important complex issue. We're all we've all got to work hard together to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to make these communities as safe, as safe as possible. There's a lot of players in this, and Metrolinx is one, and our constructors are others, and we're happy to work with people uh, to, to, to roll up our sleeves to, to uh, do it, whatever measures can be taken to make things safe. Okay, Jay Robinson? I think everybody's working collectively to do the best they can. But, you know, it's just the pressures. Just to speak to the truck driver for a minute, it's the pressures. There's such sheer volume and quantity and it's the pressures in the area that are creating this aggressive driving and this aggression across the Young Eglinton corridor. You know, the other thing I just want to add quickly, Libby, is people are saying trucks are parking on the sidewalks in these construction areas. I've moved motions on that, and we've, that's got to stop. That's pushing pedestrians out into the roadway. City Councilors Jay Robinson, James Pasternak, Josh Matlow, and Mike Cole, along with Jamie Robinson of Metrolinx. Two and a half months later, on December 2nd, a one-year pilot began. A so-called hub coordinator is in charge of conducting logistical planning of the right-of-way, reviewing construction management plans, connecting travelers with real-time information, collaborating with enforcement officers, and communicating impacts and changes to businesses and communities in the neighborhood. This is the best of Fight Back 2019. I'm Jane Brown. It was an unexpected bombshell a month before the October federal election when images surfaced of Justin Trudeau from 2001 and earlier in brownface and blackface as part of various costumes. The day after Time magazine posted one of the images, followed by the first of the liberal leaders' apologies, Libby Snymer gathered a panel to discuss the scandal. NDP strategist Kim Wright, conservative strategist Jason Leader, Zoomer magazine editor Suzanne Boyd, and liberal strategist Patrick Gossage and Ali Salam all weighed in. It was a racist act, and he should have known better at the time. I believe the apology to be sincere. You know, it's quite frankly going to be a, a tough road for him going forward with not just people of color, but all voters uh, to, to work to reassure people that this, you know, is not who he is. Patrick, there is no way that Justin Trudeau just remembered that he did this in his past. Do you know what I'm getting at? I can't vouch for, for, for Trudeau's detailed memory of what he did. I do think it puts him in a difficult situation. What we have to decide is, is Trudeau a racist, you know? And, you know, I don't think most Canadians think he's a racist because of what he did a long time ago. I think, I agree, the apology was, I've never heard an apology like that. I've never heard a leader say he was pissed off with himself. This was a genuine, heartfelt apology. He feels awful about it. I think it was effective. On the line, we have Jason Leader, who is a conservative strategist, president at Enterprise, and joining me in studio, Suzanne Boyd, who is the editor-in-chief of Zoomer magazine. Now, Suzanne, you are a woman of color. You have spent time with the prime minister. You've known him socially over the years. And last year, he was on the cover of the magazine. So uh, you spent time with him at that shoot and at an in-depth interview What was your reaction when you saw this? This is not the image, figuratively and literally, we have of Justin Trudeau. Whether you agree with his politics or his policies or not, you do believe in his values and that his heart is in the right place. So to see these um, now three 
It's stunning. I think as a Canadian, um, this is our representative. This story made headlines around the world. And this is not how we perceive ourselves or society, even though there is a lot of institutionalized racism in the society. So I think it's a bit of a, just a wake-up call. I'd like to bring in Jason Leader. As I said, one of the things that's bothering me about this is that instead of owning up to it, he, he waited to be caught. Jason, what do you think of that? This is the worst I think I've ever seen Canada look on the world stage. I don't know that I can ever remember a time that we were splashed across, the leader of our country was splashed across the news, every single newspaper in the world in this kind of a photo. Um, and it's it's not what Canada is and it's not what we want to be. And I think it takes a, a special kind of guy in the last four years sort of telling everybody, all his political opponents, you know, there was this underlying sort of, I'm better than you, I'm, I know more than you, I'm more sensitive than you. I, you know, he's, he's called everybody that is a political opponent, certainly on the conservative side, a racist in one way or another. And it's, it's just shocking that he knew that this might come up, and yet that was the tact he took. If, if I were him and I knew this stuff was out there, number one, I'd try and get in front of it and apologize for it before I got found out. But secondly, I don't think that I would have been all in on calling everybody a racist for the last couple of years. Kim Jagmeet Singh getting a lot of praise for the way he reacted. Absolutely. And as he should, as the first racialized leader of a political party, I think, you know, everyone was looking to see how he would react. And for him, it was jarring in and of itself, as it has been for a number of a number of people. But it was also talking about how people of color have been attacked over the years, how blackface and brownface, which is a a horrible mockery that should have been done away with. And for the prime minister to have said uh, things like, I've been fighting racism my whole life. Now we have not only one, but two, but three Mm -hmm. now, possibly more instances of him acting in this way. That's not a one-off. That's a trend uh, and a pattern. And he had an opportunity last night to stand up to Canadians and say, these are all the times I did this. I'm sorry, but he didn't. He, in fact, either doesn't remember because he's done it so many times or he lied to Canadians. And those things are all a whole bunch of problems for the prime minister and his staff today. NDP strategist Kim Wright, conservative strategist Jason Leader, Zoomer magazine's editor Suzanne Boyd and liberal strategist Patrick Gossage and Ali Salam. Later that same day, Trudeau issued another apology and referenced how the three images show him in blackface and brownface rather than just with makeup. This is the best of Fight Back 2019 Part 2. I'm Jane Brown. On the day after the election, our Tuesday strategy panelists weighed in on the outcome of a liberal minority win and a more divided and polarized country than ever. Most of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's seats are in eastern Canada, while the Liberals were completely shut out of Saskatchewan and Alberta. Joining Libby with reaction, Sam hard Kest, senior public affairs consultant at Enterprise Canada, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, managing principal of the Toronto office of Earnscliffe Strategy Group. You know, it's obviously an enormous sense of relief for the Liberal campaign to have emerged with uh, a very sizable minority. Uh, There were obvious concerns about what happened in Saskatchewan and in Alberta, although our strength in 
Um, British Columbia remains, obviously, we maintained a lot of support in Atlantic Canada, in Quebec, and most notably in Ontario, where the Liberal campaign managed to sweep all 2416 ridings, which is uh, a considerable relief given what happened in the provincial Ontario election last year, where uh, we were reduced to uh, seven seats. So all told, I think um, if you're a Liberal this morning, there's much cause for celebration. Karen Stintz, uh, you're, you're not a Liberal, but you were predicting a Liberal majority. I was. I actually uh, thought the NDP might lose its party status because coming into the campaign, there was some question about whether or not uh, Jagmeet Singh was connecting with the public, whether there was going to be candidates in Eastern Canada, whether they could meet their fundraising. He um, couldn't afford a plane, so he was on a bus, making it difficult to, to campaign. So I actually thought um, that the collapse of the NDP would work in the favor of the Liberals. So I, I, I thought they would have a... Re- a reduction of their seats, but I actually thought that they would be that they would be able to maintain their majority. And what do you make of the result? Well, it uh, so the NDP didn't uh, they they did stronger than I thought. Um, I actually think, unfortunately, the real um, unfortunate part of this campaign is the lack of the the movement in the Green Party. Because if there was an election, really, where they were going to make a breakthrough, it would have been this one, and uh, they still only managed to. I get three seats, I think. Um, I think, all told, it was better for the NDP than I thought, worse for the Green than I anticipated. Uh, You know, the winner is, again, the Liberals, which, again, I think everybody expected. It's just, uh, I thought that they'd do a little bit better than they did. Semhar, did the Conservatives under Andrew Scheer blow it? I don't think they blew it. Look, I think that um, the plan had always been for it to take two elections for Andrew Scheer to become prime minister. Um, they've increased their parliamentary standing. There's now 26 extra seats that the Conservatives have picked up. Um, I also think that, um, you know, this this was a tough campaign. It was a dirty campaign. And we're the only, I think all of the party leaders and most of the party leaders lost. I think the only person or the only party leader who came out of this election a winner is Mr. Blanchet. Um, I had no idea who Mr. Blanchet was on day one of this election. And I think most Canadians didn't think the bloc was a factor. Um, and he managed to get it through. It wasn't right? <laughs> until he came out of the gate. That's right. And here we are, 32 seats. Uh, he's got an important standing in, in the House of Commons and, uh, and an important voice uh, for, for separatist Quebecers. I'm going to get a closing statement from each one of you, starting with Semhar. Um, I'm happy to see the election over. Um, I will say that uh, this is an election of losses. I think it's it's a loss for Canadians as a whole. Um, I think it's a loss for most of the party leaders. And the only real winner of this election was Blanchette, which might actually hurt Canada as a whole. So I would really like to see the prime minister make uh, required efforts to, to unite unite Canadians and ensure this country remains united. Charles? I think Canadians have spoken. They've produced a result which is quite remarkable, which is to say that the Liberals have been reduced from a majority to a fairly solid minority. So they'll have to behave differently. They'll have to act differently. They'll have to work more cooperatively with other product parties. And I think it's a credit to our democracy that we have this result. Yeah, I do think that... Um Trudeau would be would be wise to see this for what it is, which is he 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 didn't get handed a majority. It's not business as usual in Ottawa, and and uh, changing the way that he has been doing business, uh, I think would be beneficial for him and his future. Uh, you know, in spite of all the rhetoric around Andrew Shear, I think he did a good job. He increased his seat count. People know him now. He learned a lot, 
And it would be a shame to waste those learnings trying to get into a leadership debate, which I think will not produce gains for the party. And I think, again, you know, Elizabeth May, she's going to retire from politics. And uh, I think that we owe her a debt of gratitude for highlighting an issue that became the election issue for a lot of Canadians. And it's unfortunate that her party didn't make bigger gains, but uh, I think that party um, has room to grow. And uh, I think we, we do owe her a debt of gratitude. Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor, current CEO of Variety Village, strategist Charles Bird, and Semhar Tekest, senior public affairs consultant at Enterprise Canada. They joined Libby on October 22nd, the day after the federal election. A month and a half later, on December 12th, Andrew Scheer announced he will step down from the Conservative leadership once a successor is chosen. Political pundits expected this to happen, just maybe not so soon. This is the Best of Fight Back 2019. I'm Jane Brown. During the first week of December, Toronto Mayor John Tory announced he hopes to significantly increase property taxes over the coming years. It was a reversal of what he'd been saying throughout his tenure and the biggest financial move of his time as mayor. This increase in the city building fund, which is dedicated to transit and housing projects, would come to 8% over the next six years. The mayor has a lot of support for this move on council because it comes after years of warnings that if investments aren't made in housing and transit, we will enter a period of crisis. Both city councillors Gord Perks and Shelley Carroll are in support of the plan. They joined Libby to discuss. Well, I know that this is coming as a shock to some people. I've had some calls and it's tough. You know, a lot of people bought what is the average home in Toronto in our three big suburbs. And a long time ago when they bought it, they never expected that their property taxes as much as 400, 480 a month. And that is a big hit. And we know that it's a big investment for people. I pay it myself in my own home. But we have a situation right now with transit just in the last two weeks, track fires, the unsexy work, not the, the big new lines that the premier gets to announce, but the work that needs to be done to keep people moving and going to work every day, to keep our economy going, we have fallen woefully behind on that by putting off investment. And the mayor is recognizing finally that we have to make that investment. It is uh, irresponsible not to get started on that work in a really significant way. Yes, absolutely. The thing to remember is property taxes buy services. If you want to get your street plowed, if you want us to have a recreation program for seniors at a local community center, if you want a fire truck to show up, if there's a fire on your street, that costs money. We've been under-investing in those things. And if you had to go and meet all those needs out of your own money, it would cost an awful lot more than when we do it together through property taxes. So for most of us, unless you live in a home that's worth $2 million or more, you actually get more value out of a property tax increase in terms of the value of those services than you spend in the property taxes. So for 75, 80% of Torontonians, this actually makes life more affordable. That's one way of looking at it, but owning a home in Toronto is very expensive. They're just another poll out today saying that for millennials, it's like a pipe dream. And nearly half say 
that they would like to own a home, but it, it just isn't going to happen for them. At the other end of the age spectrum, we have a lot of people on fixed incomes who bought homes back in the day when it was all very reasonable and suddenly their homes are worth a huge amount of money and that has an impact on property taxes and that in turn has an impact on their ability to stay in their homes. You raise a very important point and that's why the city for years has had a program for people who are on fixed incomes or low incomes or people with disabilities or seniors that says we can defer your property taxes or waive your property taxes depending on your income and therefore make sure that you are looked after. Shelley, what is your take on this? The property tax are paid by any Torontonian with a fixed address. Unless you're homeless, you are paying property taxes, whether you pay it directly as a homeowner or you pay it as an apartment dweller. Part of the reason that rents are made up of what seems like a high rent to most tenants, and and they are higher these days, is because they include property taxes. And what we have been doing over the last few years is trying to balance that out because for a long time in Toronto, tenants on a per square foot basis actually paid much higher property taxes than homeowners, likewise condo dwellers. We've been balancing that down a bit and that shift is now done so that it's a little more fair, but they still pay a slightly higher ratio than homeowners. They live in smaller dwellings, and so it it adds up to a smaller bill on a per-unit basis, but they're paying property taxes as well. So really, all of us, if we live in Toronto and we're lucky enough to have a roof over our head, we will be contributing to this. And for all of us, it will be money out of pocket. I'm painfully aware of that. Toronto Councillors Shelley Carroll for Ward 17 Don Valley North and Gord Perks for Ward 4 Parkdale High Park. I'm Jane Brown, and from all of us on the Fight Back team, we hope you enjoyed our look back at the year that was 2019. Please join Libby Snymer tomorrow after the new news as we begin a new year of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.